All right, friends, let's do a little game together. Um, if you're sitting in your living room or watching on your laptop, in your office, wherever you might be, take a moment and ask yourself, have you heard this story before? I bet you have. It's one of the most famous stories in the history of the world. It's one of those stories that's told over and over again, and it's used to explain very basic principles of life and creation. It's trying to explain something to us. And I wonder if you have heard really unusual interpretations of this, because I definitely have. But at its core, this very famous story is really only trying to answer two questions for us. Just two questions. First, why does evil exist in the world? And the second is, why does God allow evil to exist in the world? You see, these are the two questions that the authors of this story or author of this story are trying to answer. Why is there evil and why does God allow that evil to exist? That's basically the thrust of the story. The two questions go in hand. The first question as to why evil ex exists at all is a question that every human being asks. Because all human beings, to one extent or another, experience suffering. The second question as to why God would allow evil in the world is a question for all of us in the world who believe in a divine being. Because if we think there is a creator who should look like morality and love and justice, then why would that creator allow bad things to happen to good people, as the famous saying goes? Now, I imagine, as I said at the beginning, you've heard some interesting interpretations of this text. And so I thought we would play this little game to see if you've heard these before, if these are things that you're familiar with. But before we dive into those proper interpretations that I think exist, uh, we should have a little fun in debunking some of these weird interpretations that we've all heard. So the first interpretation that we want to talk about today is this idea in Genesis 3 that it's an effort to explain a, a scientific history of how human beings were created, and particularly to explain why a man and a woman get married and have children. Now, there's a name for this. This is very common in the book of Genesis. In seminary, you learn about this fancy word, etiological or etiological. And etiological is a way of explaining how something came into existence. It's like when your kid is a toddler or maybe a kindergartner and they say, why is the sky blue? An etiological explanation is an explanation of someone trying to come up with an answer to why the sky is blue when they don't really know. Now, we know now from science and observation and measurement why the sky is blue, and it's not a very romantic answer, but we need these etiological explanations to give ourselves meaning in life. And so the ancient authors would sit back and try to come up with reasons for why we exist and why uh, we get married and why we have children the way we have children and all these interesting things. Another strange interpretation of this text is that another etiological explanation trying to be answered is why snakes exist. <laughs> you see in the story, there's this thing called the serpent. 
Now, in Hebrew, this word for serpent could be any kind of lizard-like creature. In fact, it's likely they may have even been talking about dragons. Not because they thought necessarily dragons were visible and real in their time, but there were always myths and stories about dragons and, of course, dinosaur bones. And so you think, well, maybe that's what we're talking about here. It doesn't have to be specifically a snake in this story. And crawling on your belly doesn't necessarily mean that you're a snake. Many lizards crawl along the ground, and it appears as if their belly is touching the ground. So this isn't a story to explain why snakes exist. And if you see a a snake in the story talking to Eve, it's kind of a bad interpretation to begin with. Because if we're to believe the story, then this creature probably had legs when it was talking to Eve in the first place. (laughs) I know, that's weird. But you hear these kinds of things like, well, this story is a scientific explanation for how human beings were created out of the dust, out of the ground. And it's a scientific explanation for how snakes came to exist and how marriage and childbearing came to exist. One last etiological explanation that maybe you've heard is that this is an historical account of the first two human beings in history. Now, if you want to believe that, that's okay. There's nothing wrong about that. It's perfectly orthodox. It's mainstream to think that Adam and Eve were historical characters, the actual, true, original, first two human beings in the world. If you believe that, that's okay. But it's also okay if you don't think that that's quite accurate. If you've thought for more than 10 seconds about the idea that Adam and Eve were the two and the only two first human beings it really quickly occurs to you, doesn't it, that brothers and sisters and cousins would have to be getting married in those early days to have more children and to populate the earth. We actually know from science that you need at least 50 people in a group in order for genetic mutations not to basically kill off that group of people. I know it's a weird thing to say, but basically what we're getting at is it's scientifically very unlikely that human beings started from just two people, and there'd be a lot of genetic weirdness going on if that were the case. Now, there's another little hint that maybe this is not a historical account so much as an important story that we need to tell each other. If you're watching a movie and you see a talking dragon, You don't immediately think that you're on the History Channel, do you? (laughs) I mean, it's clear that we're not talking history here when a talking dragon is in the movie. And in the same way, this talking serpent should cue us that this is a fable, or a metaphor, or what Peter Inns calls mythical history. Meaning that the story is true, even if it's not factual. I know that that's a hard thing to understand sometimes, but things can be true and not factual all the time in our lives. You can witness a crime being committed and recount it to the police, and your facts may not be quite accurate. But the gist of the story is true, that you saw this person commit a crime. That's true. In the same way, mythical history uh, tells a true story, but it may not get every fact and detail correct. And so we believe in the truth of this story, that this story has wisdom to teach us and show us and help us to grow in God, but not that it's necessarily an historical account of how human beings came to be. Now, if some of the things I've just said landed like a ton of bricks on your head, please know that at Cayley Community and in the United Methodist Church, we're a big tent denomination. 
we're okay with people having differing views about the creation stories and many other things because we like to put first things first, Jesus Christ and the gospel, and these other things sort of flow out of that. And so don't feel like you have to toe the line and believe everything Pastor Levi says. Check it for yourself. Read your Bible. Test it in the community and come to your own conclusions. But I will say that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would just ask that we would understand how this explanation that I'm giving today might help us. Not so much that it's an historical account, but that it is wisdom for us to garner and to grasp so that we can grow in our faith. Now, you recall last week we started our new sermon series, Back to School Reconciliation Style. And last week we looked at Genesis chapter 0, thanks to Kylan giving us that great imagery. We went back before the Bible, before creation, when God existed in eternity past, just God, no universe, no world. And we saw that God existed in this beautiful community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we saw that God was determined to create human beings and all of creation to join God in a dance of love and worship and service to one another. So in Genesis chapter 3, we land on the last of the creation. After the seas and the skies, after the sun and the moon and the stars, after the swimming creatures and the crawling creatures and the flying creatures, now we come to human beings. And all of this story in Genesis, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, is a story of a God who is good and powerful, who has created all things to join this dance of love and worship, and now is determined to create a being that looks more like God, but less than God. God's determined to create a being that thinks for itself and has this thing called free will. And God creates this being, not alone, but in community. And then puts one rule in the paradise for which he's created for them. That one rule. Do you remember what the one rule is? You can do anything you want in this paradise, in this garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Bad idea. Now, have you ever asked yourself the question, why did God make that one rule? Why? Why would God set them up for failure? It feels like God just sets them up to fail. If God had simply not put that tree in the garden in the first place, these human beings would never have the option of breaking the rule. But remember in the story of Genesis, what the writers are trying to communicate to us is that human beings are substantially different from the rest of creation. Human beings are above the grass and the trees and the other animals because we have something they don't have. We have the capacity to make decisions because we have free will. We have cognition. We have this free will. And so if God is going to create a being with free will, God has to create circumstances where those beings can exercise that free will. If you can't exercise your free will, then you really don't have free will at all. I mean, think about somebody who's in like a very high security prison situation, right? They technically have free will. They can think for themselves and make decisions, but practically they don't have free will. They don't decide when they eat or where they eat, where they go, when they watch TV, what they watch on the TV. They have no free will. Technically they do in their mind and they have the ability to make choices, but because of their environment... They have no functional free will. And so in the same way, if God had created a paradise 
and created a being with free will but gave him no chance to exercise that free will, it would be just like being in prison. It wouldn't be functionally free will. So God does give us a chance to express our free will by making our own choices, including bad choices. So God's existed in this beautiful eternal dance. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's created this beautiful universe to join the divine dance. Animals and trees and rocks and water, they're all singing and worshiping God. And this is told to us in the Psalms, for example, where it says the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, the the universe, the stars, the planets were literally worshiping God. They've joined the dance. Jesus, at one point in his ministry, tells uh, his disciples and those who are opposing him that even if no human beings worshiped God, even the rocks would cry out in worship to God. And the Psalms make clear that the, the mountains can even sing for joy to God. So, in other words, whether you ever thought about it or not, consider that it's a standard teaching in the Holy Scriptures, a wisdom in the Holy Scriptures, that from the beginning to the end, all of creation was created to join God's dance, to sing and worship with God, whether it's a rock on the ground or ocean water or stars in the sky. God's creation was created to dance with God. And God creates this universe of dance and then creates human beings to have free will and to willingly choose whether to join this dance. And so, you know how the story goes. We make great and awesome and loving choices and we all live happily ever after. (laughs) I wish that were true. But of course, we can see that's not how the story goes. What actually happens is that human beings choose to do the one thing that God has said is bad for them. And the natural consequences flow out of this. Since our school series, our back-to-school series, is about reconciliation or going back and putting something together again, we have to kind of see what fell apart in the first place. And what fell apart is that these human beings chose to leave the dance of God. That's what we're trying to get back to, is this eternal dance of God. Now, in the story that the Jewish writers give us in Genesis 3, these natural consequences flow out from our free will decisions. Now, in the ancient understanding, they call these curses of God, that God's cursing people. I think it's rather more accurate to say that there are just natural consequences for sin. Think about what the human beings had to do. They had to leave God's presence. They had to live under the consequences of their choices. Instead of living in paradise and God providing everything they need. They don't have to go earn it and work the ground and uh, create children to help them grow a family. It's a really difficult thing. Now the sermon's a little more philosophical than most, and that's because it's a very deep and powerful and well-known passage of scripture. When you know scripture really well, when you know a story really well, you need to dig and scratch deeper under the surface because it's so easy, as Patrick Otuama says, to read what we think is there and not what's actually there. So the more familiar you are with a Bible story, the deeper you need to go into it. Ask yourself tougher questions. And I think the main point of this story is not how God created humans or why marriage exists or why there are snakes in the world, but that there is evil and suffering because of our choices. But God wanted us in this dance and we said, no, thank you. 
God invited us to God's party and we said, we're going to throw our own party and we'll cry if we want to. <laughs> we sinned. And sin is leaving the dance. Now, what's the first consequence of sin? Have you ever asked yourself that? When you sin, what is the first consequence? What is the main and only consequence of sin? You might be tempted to say, well, it depends on the sin, right? Uh, if I cheat on my taxes, then the consequence could be that I could get fines or go to prison. If I uh, lie to my spouse, then the consequence is I, I live with guilt and maybe my spouse is angry with me if they find out. If I uh, am rude to my kids on the way home from school, then the consequence is that we're not getting along. Right? You would say it depends on the sin what the consequence is, but the truth is there's only ever one consequence for sin. The consequence for sin is always separation. Always separation. Think about those examples. You cheat on your taxes, right? Well, yeah, in the first instance, there's the possibility of fines or prison. But what that means is that you have separated yourself from the legal structure of our country. You've separated yourself from your spouse, maybe, who didn't know you were cheating on your taxes. You've created a wedge of separation. You've separated yourself from God by doing something that dishonors God, by being dishonest, right? If you sin by lying to your spouse, again, in the first instance, maybe the consequence of that sin is you're living with some guilt, but you know deeper than that, that that lie is creating a separation between you and your spouse. But when you tell that lie, you have this internal emotional separation, and then you know if the lie ever comes out in the light of day, you're going to have a physical separation, right? The consequence of sin is always separation. Separation from God, just like Adam and Eve, right? They sinned and they had to leave the presence of God. Separation from each other. Think about Adam and Eve. What's the first thing they did when they sinned? They separated from each other by putting clothes on. I mean, they lived in naked joy. <laughs> and if you're a, a couple at home watching this, I'm sorry if the kids are watching right now, cover their ears. But I think most of us as, as partners would say, what a great idea. Let's have naked day. <laughs> That's what they had. Every day was naked day with this couple. And yet when they sinned, they had to cover their bodies. They were suddenly ashamed. That created a division or a separation between two people who are really united as one. Suddenly they're separated. And you can see they're separated because what do they do? They blame, right? The guy immediately blames his woman for the sin. Well, she gave me the fruit. So there's this separation occurring. So we're separated from God like Adam and Eve leave the presence of God. We're separated from each other. We're separated from creation because now we've fractured everything and nothing works right anymore. These rocks and, and ocean water and trees that are supposed to be singing God's worship are suddenly fractured and broken because of our sin. The whole world isn't working right anymore. And so we're separated from creation, and creation is even now hostile to us. We have to work the ground to get our food, and the ground doesn't always want to give us food. I don't know if you've ever tried to grow tomatoes in Oklahoma, I know some people who do it well, but it's really rough for me. <laughs> We've rarely been successful. 
the ground is hostile to us. The earth is hostile to us. We're about to have, well, if you're watching this on Sunday morning, it's zero degrees outside. So there's separation between even creation. And so what's the answer to the separation of sin? It's the reconciliation between people and between those people and God. So if we're broken away from God's dance by our own choices, then the whole of us are just left hopeless, right? We've chosen to leave God's dance and there's no way back into the dance, right? Well, thank God that's not true. If you're a Christian, it's because you have a hope that there's good news. What we call the gospel just means good news. In the Christian tradition, this good news is that God's made a path back to God's dance. God's made a plan to reconcile us back into the dance. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Next Sunday, if we know we've been broken off of paradise and it's God's goal to get us back to paradise, back into the dance, then I'd want to leave you with a positive message. I'm not going to tell you how to get back in the dance yet, but I want you to know that it is God's vision for us to come back into that dance. In the lectionary around this time of year, we read from Isaiah chapter 60, and this is where the prophet dreams of a reconciled universe. This is where the prophet dreams of that reconciliation, where we go back to the dance and we join the dance again. Hear from the prophet Isaiah. As if Isaiah is speaking directly to you personally. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, a thick darkness over the peoples, but the Lord rises over you like the sun, and the Lord's glory appears over you. Nations will come to this light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around you. Everyone assemble and come to you. Your sons from afar, your daughters are carried on the hip. You will look radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you, and the riches of the nations will come to you. Your gates will fling open, and they'll never be shut, not in the day or in the night, so that the people may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. The sun no more will be your light by day. Nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord God will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again. Your moon will wane no more. Your Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they'll possess this land forever. They are the shoot that I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of God's splendor, the display of God's splendor, the reconciliation of the world back to God. Be reconciled to God and to one another. How do we do that? Well, we're going to find out next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, but also in person, we hope. Amen? <laughs> Amen.